Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Edge of Comfort podcast, where people from all over the world share their unique travel adventures, experiences, perspectives, pieces of advice, and ways of living life to the fullest. I am your host, Lee Thornquist, and thank you for listening. On today's episode, we are joined by Sophia Iaquinta. Sophia is from Nebraska in the USA and is on the midst of a multi-month solo trip throughout Asia. And upon graduation from university in Minnesota, Sophia worked as a nurse in the medical ICU unit in Minnesota for two years. And after many long night shifts and realizing that maybe she didn't want to spend her career in a hospital, she looked to other options and especially ones that would allow her to combine her love of travel with nursing. So, last spring 2017, Sophia applied to the Peace Corps and was accepted midsummer. So this means she will be working as a maternal and child health specialist in Guatemala for two years, starting winter 2018. After quitting her nursing job in Minnesota, She had about a good four-month window between when her lease expired and when she has to start with the Peace Corps, so she decided to spend this time frame traveling. And Sophia and I met in Hiroshima, Japan, but since then we split and explored different parts of Asia. So she went to Thailand, where she saw the Lantern Festival in Chiang Mai, then up to a country called Myanmar, or formerly known as Burma. Now, if that name sounds familiar, but you have absolutely no idea where it is, don't worry, you're not alone. I've been over in Asia multiple times, and I still have trouble locating it sometimes. So, Myanmar shares a border with Thailand, and is situated along the northwest of the Thailand border. It's probably a bit easier just to do a quick Google map search, if you care to know where Myanmar is. And... Myanmar is definitely not one of the first stop on people's lists when they are heading to Southeast Asia. So why might this be? Well, Myanmar only opened its borders back up to tourism after 50 years of a tourist ban about five years ago. So the appeal, I guess, hasn't exactly hit the masses yet, which might actually mean it's the perfect time to go and visit. So I'm really excited that Sophia is able to share a bit about Myanmar, because it's a place myself and many other travelers I meet really don't know much about, but have a desire to visit since we're in the area and quite close. So along with a good chunk of the conversation focusing around Myanmar, we do discuss the Lantern Festival in Chiang Mai, how Sophia is a cultural type traveler and what that means, uh, some good ways to pack light, tips for female travelers, how our perceptions influence our experiences and travels, and much, much more. Now, I do apologize for the connection at the beginning of the episode. We were having a bit of trouble with Wi-Fi and just some connection issues. You'll hear a bit of this. It's not too bad, but if the audio sounds a bit strange or briefly speeds up, don't freak out. It's not your phone. Nothing's wrong with your phone or anything. Just stick with us. The majority of the episode is crystal clear communication, minus a bit of background noise from the Myanmar uh, street and cars. But if you really can't stand some of the annoyances at the beginning, just hit the 15-second fast-forward button, and it should be all good. Now, this is a two-part episode. Our conversation went quite long, so you're now listening to part one, and part two will be released next Monday. So make sure to be on the lookout for that. And Sophia really offers some terrific insights in both parts, not only into Myanmar, but also tips for any type of traveler and how to make the most of your individual journey. And if you've listened to the past few episodes, you will know that I'm releasing an ebook that includes a collection of the best travel tips I've discovered or learned while on the road, as well as ones I've received from other travelers or had on the podcast. It's quite comprehensive and includes tips and resources in categories like eating, accommodation, transportation, meeting people, 
and other general tips. Now, this ebook is only being released to Edge of Comfort email subscribers. If you've already signed up, awesome, thank you. You don't need to do anything, and you'll be receiving this in your email in the next week or two. If you haven't already signed up, go to edgeofcomfort.com, enter your email in the pop-up box that appears, or the sidebar under my picture. And I've also had a few questions about people not receiving these emails, uh, the weekly episode emails. So if you use Gmail, these, these emails are likely going under the Promotions tab. So please check the Promotions tab. If the emails still are not appearing there, please let me know by sending a note to lee.t at edgeofcomfort.com. Again, that's lee.t, L-E-E dot T, at edgeofcomfort.com. You don't even need to write anything. Just put no emails in the subject line. I'll know what you're talking about and get the problem fixed. But please only do this if you've checked the promotions tab and still don't think you're receiving them. As always, if you want to follow my journey through photos, you can do so by following edge underscore of underscore comfort on Instagram. But more importantly, go and follow Sophia's Instagram for pictures of her travels at smiaquinta. That's S-M-I-A-Q-U-I-N-T-A on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy part one. And let's go! Traveling in a fighter combi On a hippie trail head full of zombies I met a strange lady She made me nervous She took me in and gave me breakfast she said, do you come from a land down under? A women go and men wonder. Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? You better run, you better take cover. Welcome to the Edge of Comfort podcast with your host, Lee Thornquist. Outside because the inside has even louder music. So okay. I think it sounds okay. I think we'll be wait, okay. Wait, where are you? Slash, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm doing well. Um, right now, I'm in Kuala Lumpur. Okay. Yes. Nice. Um. So yeah. So, where are you right now? It's <laughs> a great question. I am uh, in Nuang Shui which is in Myanmar. It's on the north coast of Lake Inlay in the eastern... So it's, like, not even really, like, northern for Myanmar, but, like, northern, more north Myanmar. <laughs> okay. I, I think I need to look at a map to find that. <laughs> you should. It's, it's, like, so, like, there's Yangon is in the south, and, the, like, where everyone flies into, and then if you go straight north, you pretty much hit Mandalay, and then Bagan is like slightly to the west, south of Mandalay, and uh, Lake Inlay is slightly south and to the right of Mandalay. And by slightly south, I mean still five hours by bus. Oh, wow. Okay. Because everything is far away here. Got it. How long have you been in... Well, I guess, yeah, so just to... <laughs> where have you been since we left in Hiroshima? Okay, so I went north. I took the train to... Where did I go that night? Oh, I, I went straight to Hanoke. All right, actually, I gave up before Hanoke, and I stayed in a town before Hanoke. I don't remember what it was called off the top of my head. And then I went uh, to Hanoke for a day and then up to Tokyo. And I was in Tokyo, and I flew out of Tokyo for Chiang Mai. And I got to Chiang Mai, and I spent like a week and a half or so in northern Thailand I really didn't spend that long I did like kind of the short condensed version and just like flew through it and was there for the lantern festival and then I flew out for Myanmar I flew out for Yangon 
and I've been here now like 11 days. I was maybe only going to spend two weeks here, but at the rate I'm going, I'm going to spend like 20 at least. Like I'm going to spend close to my visa. Oh, wow. Is that just because you've enjoyed it more than you thought you would or just kind of like spent longer in places? Um, I think why well, I came here kind of on a whim. I've always wanted to go to Myanmar for a very long time, uh, but with everything with the military and the political tensions between um, Aung San Suu and then the Tatmadaw, which is the military, I, I was kind of, and just being a tourist I, and with everything going on in the Rakhine state and Bangladesh, I was like, I don't know if I ethically like want to go to Myanmar. Um, but then I decided to come, and it is, it's one of the most, it is probably one of my favorite countries that I've been to, if not my favorite country. Uh, and I just haven't left. It's, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. It's, the size is massive. Like, you think, oh, yeah, I don't know, Milan, but meanwhile you travel five hours and you, you don't even get anywhere. Like, you've, it doesn't look like you've gone anywhere on the map. And, I mean, the country, the landscape is beautiful. The people are so kind. Um... And there's just so much, and it's really not, uh, there's some very touristy areas, but compared to Thailand, um, it's really an undiscovered kind of tourist area. And so that's also why I really like it, because I feel like I'm not one of a million tourists currently. Yeah. So, wait, where is, um, because... I literally just saw an article today about Myanmar saying, like, the eight top places you need to avoid when you go here because of, like, all that political tension and stuff. Um, but I didn't read, I didn't actually read the article. But, like, do you know where the... Wait, the, so it talked... Sorry. Wait, it talked about where in Myanmar you avoid? Yeah, where to avoid. Because of, like, the... Weren't there oh, recently, oh. like, some pretty heavy things going on there like I know it kind of like some yes. travel warnings yeah so since August um oh wow that's a really loud car it's because it's a truck carrying rocks and people sorry that's really typical up here um <laughs> so essentially since August. I mean, the thing is that this, this, these political issues have been going on for a very long time, but it finally gained international notice in about the beginning of August. And what happened is, it's interesting when you look at Myanmar as a country because it's a very percent. I mean, it borders India, China, and then Southeast Thailand on the south. And so you have these like influence of almost like Chinese traditional people, Indian more Indian traditional communities, and there's not really, like, you know when you go to a country and someone say, oh, you know, I'm a people are Indian. Everyone looks you know, very, very different here, um, and everyone comes from a base tribe, and it, in the states, so, like, right now I'm in the Shan state, it's the Shan tribe, and they're very proud of their cultural heritage, but what is happening in the Rakhine state is that there are the Rakhine people, and then the, there's this group of people called the Rohingya who are originally from Bangladesh and came here, they're Muslim, and are, li and are living in the Rakhine state. And her people here in the news, like, it's, the Rohingya have never been considered uh, citizens of uh, Myanmar. Like, they've never been considered citizens. And that was never in the international news until the military started in a genocidal way evacuating people across the border to back to Bangladesh to Bangladesh okay. it, it's really complicated yeah. because you read online and all the foreign influence is a lot of the human rights saying you know this is terrible we need to stop this we need to stop the military and it's so interesting coming here because all of the general public is like in support of what's going on for the military it's wild. Like, it's it's so interesting to be in this country to see, but it's not in an aggressive way. It's in the fact that they don't think that these people ever belonged in Myanmar, which is also ironic because all the states have such independent roots and clans. 
you kind of understand what I'm saying. It's it's really yeah. confusing. Like I've been, and I think that's part of what's so interesting being here too is like talking to people and stuff. So like my first day in Myanmar, I randomly found a mosque in Yangon. I didn't know it was a mosque at first um, because I couldn't see the top with the half moon and stuff and. I was invited in by these Iranian Shia Muslims to talk with them and see the mosque, and then they ended up introducing me to their wife, his his wife, and uh, talking to me about the paintings on the inside in the mosque. And I I was kind of asking them about what was going on on the border, and he said, "Oh, it's really interesting, um, but." But they're actually like Shia Muslims too, is what I got from the conversation. And the Wi Fi hasn't been good enough, so I haven't really been able to like totally verify that. Um, but at the same time, he seemed really like distant from that as well. He's like, oh, like, yeah, they're that this type of Muslim too. But like, didn't really seem to like, maybe it wasn't that he didn't care, but you just can't really speak out about it either. If, I guess we do protest it. Okay. I don't know. And then I was here for a huge national day, too, which they were walking through the streets in, when I was in Pa'an, uh, and like Malmin, and there's a huge parade. Uh, and they were saying, like, stop international pressure of the Tatmadaw, which is the military, and, like, support our nation growing strong, uh, support our military. And I was just kind of standing there with the German couple, and, like, interesting. <laughs> So, I don't know. It seems like they're so accepting of every culture, but then not these people. Okay. Like, I don't know. It seems so mixed. Like, there's Hindi, there's Muslim, there, you know, Sunni, Shia. But obviously, the largest is Buddhist. And then the Hinduism, there's still Hinduism. And they seem to all integrate just, and Christianity. And they all seem to integrate just fine, except for these people. Great people. Uh, because of this ideology that they never belonged. Uh, but then the Buddhists, like, are so against the Rohingya, and that's really interesting too, like, they have so much hate towards the Muslims, which I find ironic. Sorry, that's a little bit of a tangent, but it's, it's so interesting to try and figure it out, and I think that's what's interested me about this country as well, like, I don't feel in danger at all. Uh, I'm also not in any of the regions where I'm not planning on heading to any of the regions, and you can't get to them anyways, they're all blocked off. Okay, so majority of the country is still pretty safe, but it's just kind of avoid the border and areas near that? Yeah, part of the northern state, like in the north of Myanmar is all limits military, military, and then where the Rohingya stuff is in the southwest uh, kind of area or the west border with Bang uh, Bangladesh is off limits. And like, you, think you can get to some spots, but it's, uh, why would you? <laughs> Like, I'm not about to walk into that. Yeah. So, what else, like, you talked a little bit about, like, quickly at the beginning, but I, I guess I don't really know much about Myanmar, but it is an area where I'm hoping I can get to at least for a little bit. So, what, like, what is there to do there, I guess? You know, when you think of Thailand, you think of beaches and diving, things like that. Um, and, like, Vietnam is, like, good lands, uh, countryside, things like that. So... Could you just explain a little bit more about what you've actually been doing in Myanmar? Okay, so shortcut uh, of it is that I like traveling culturally. When you're in Myanmar, you feel like there's times where you don't see any other tourists. There are places that are very touristy, um, but there are also a lot of places where you you feel like you're just kind of immersed in the culture and more transient uh, and translucent through what's just going on in daily life. Uh, it's the land of, like I said, five like million trillion pagodas. Um, and it's really the architecture and the infrastructure is interesting with the combination of English colonialism, uh, like dilapidated English colonialism, and uh, preserved... Uh, more like indigenous culture and what they would consider more like tribal culture for all of the regions. So every region is so very proud of their, you know, their clothing, their dance, um, the people, the language. There are over a hundred, I think in five or 150 languages spoken in Myanmar still. 
and like every state. One hundred and fifty. Yeah, like I think it was like a hundred. Either it's like one hundred and five or one hundred and fifty. I might have mixed up my zero and my five, but it's a lot. Like over a hundred languages still spoken in Myanmar, and you know Burmese is the is the biggest, obviously, and everyone speaks Burmese. But everyone mostly speaks like local dialect too. So if you are Sean, you don't speak the same local dialect as Paho, which is another tribe in the region, which is really interesting. Okay. So it's many yeah. different dialects and forms of Burmese, kind of? Well, no, they're just completely different languages. Okay. Like uh, the Shan language, if you speak Thai, you can almost understand Shan. But if you speak like a, like a Pao, you can't really understand Shan. Got it. It's, it's very interesting. So yeah. how have you been able to do anything with all these different languages? <laughs> Well, everyone does speak, like, Burmese, too, on top of, like, their their language. But people are very proud of their language and their culture. Um, and when I say... Uh, I, would, I would describe Myanmar as it's modernized in the sense that, you know, you have, you have bikes, you have TVs and a lot of houses and satellites, but I wouldn't say it's fully westernized yet. That's how I would describe Myanmar. Modernized, not westernized. Okay. To like the extent that Thailand is, got it. In other countries, yeah. Um, and I mean, it's a beautiful country. And you look at, you know, you look at the GDP, and it, it's it's still like a really low ranking. I believe it's still a third third world country. It has to be. But when you look at a third world country in Africa where you don't have any food sustainability, and then you look at Myanmar, you know, people in Myanmar aren't hungry. You know, you can you you can be very very poor, but you're not hungry because uh, they're even in the driest region like the Bagan area, there's still rivers. Like, there's still water and access to water for growing. Okay. So it's incredible. Like, even on, like, Inlay, where it's, it's what, it's, I don't know, it's so hot. It's, like, 80, it's not even as hot here as other, so in the south, it was, like, 95 degrees during the day every day, but they're just rice paddies and, and avocado trees and the crops are so abundant, and they're still growing because they have this surplus of water. So where have you been staying then? If it's like not, if it's still like kind of developing for tourism and everything, because I think so. It, there are a lot of hotels and hostels, so that's why I say it's like modernized, but it's not like fully westernized. So like because the English were here, there are a lot of hotels and places and guest houses, and so I mean it's definitely opening up more to tourism. Um, right now, I'm actually at a hostel. It's called Astello Bello, and it's interesting. It's a guy from Italy came to Myanmar and owns like a hostel in Milan, and then started like three hostels here. It's so, like one in Bagan, one in Inlay, and one in uh, Mandalay. And because of the English, like there has been travel here, and there are guest houses. Um, it's just that they're not overly booked. I feel like. Or that, I, I don't know how to describe the fact that, like, you feel like a tourist, but, like, you also don't feel like a tourist, because there are a lot of places to stay, um, and, I mean, you can always stay in a monastery if you need to. Okay. But so, yeah, like, if you don't have to stay. Okay, I think I know what you're trying to say, though. Like, if you go to another city in Southeast Asia, like, common one you hear about is, like, Bangkok or, uh, like, Ho Chi Minh City or, you know... Those are very, very heavily influenced by tourism, and a lot of the local, like businesses, and things set up are around tourism. So, is it like maybe a little bit different in that way, where it's still like local businesses not designed strictly for that sense? Yeah, exactly, and especially when you see in markets and daily life, um, you, you really see that. You know, you're walking through. So, for example, when I trekked, I, it's a pretty common tourist trek. I trekked for the last two days, stayed in a village overnight, and there were it's it's heavy, it's high season right now, and so there were actually probably like twenty to thirty tourists staying in this village um, that night, but you didn't notice. I think in the sense that like the kids weren't, you know, all googling over oh these are the tourists like we brought a frisbee out and we're playing with them and then we just let them play and sat out there and you know sometimes i feel like you go and everyone's like oh like you know like coming up to you and they just ignore it 
you know, they just keep doing their thing. They're like, oh, here are these other people. Cool. <laughs> okay. Well, didn't... Because for a while, they didn't... The country didn't allow any tourism, right? Like, I think yeah. it was in maybe 2012 or 2011 when they, like, actually opened up their borders back for tourism. Officially. Yeah, officially. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, so it's it's really, really interesting to be here. I mean, it's a beautiful country. There are mountains, and, and even on Lake Inlay, there's people have built their houses out into the lake, like on built-up dams, and there's all of this agricultural infrastructure in place for like growing tomatoes essentially on the water like they're floating beds of agriculture and the houses are all built on stilts which some of them I think are like 20-30 feet deep the poles have to go into the water and it's just in- it's just incredible to me that these structures were here so long before there even was any English influence in the area you know these pagodas these different structures were here way before it's just it's just really it's incredible yeah you're selling this country pretty well (laughs) no i i honestly you should i i didn't i don't know it's really different when you get here i was like oh okay and i just like keep going from place to place and I, i think i like it so much because it is like a little more off the beaten track i feel like this is how laos would feel yeah that's that's another place where i'm trying to be like ask every tourist i see or like other traveler and just be like, oh, have you been there yet? What? Because that's another place where I keep hearing about, but I really don't know much about. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I can't even imagine. I'm just worried because I even look at Myanmar now, and like if it goes the same, it's going to go the same route as like Thailand did. Um, but it's so hard to think, you know, how much this country is going to change because it already is, you know, starting to change a little bit more. Um, and so, like, I'm, that's why I'm really glad I'm here, and I think that's why I've stayed too. Is that I, I really would like to fully experience the country while it is like it is now, because I think if I ever would come back someday, it would be completely different. Yeah, definitely, and especially if, I mean, if it continues being open to tourists and everything, like, who knows how that can influence it? Hopefully, it doesn't just right. become another place like that. Yeah. So you did the lantern festival in thailand correct yeah correct. okay cute in what chiang was mai that? in chiang mai okay so what was that like i know that's probably one of the more popular ones among people or tourists yeah it is so there were i mean there were just a lot of people there almost a lot i feel like most hostels were fully booked hostels and hotels were fully booked uh, with tourists from, I mean, they were really from everywhere. There were a lot from Europe, but there were also a lot from other parts of Asia that came in um, to celebrate the festival. I think, I don't know, it was was really interesting with the festival itself and the meaning of it uh, because it felt really just tourist-based and tourist-driven for the festival with a lot of the local people making the uh they're called like the krithongs so they're the bamboo boats and send them into the water a lot of the uh, locals making bamboo boats just to sell to tourists and then selling lanterns and i mean there were a lot of locals celebrating as well but at one point on one of the main bridges when you walked out it was just like surrounded by people and none of them actually lived in the country (laughs) So, so what was, like, the, I guess, what's the cultural significance behind it? Why did they do it? And it's only a once-a-year type thing, correct? Correct. So it's actually two festivals um, that go on at the same time. So one is called Yip. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. So one is called um, Yipeng. And then the other is called Loi Krithong. Um, and they usually fall at the same time. But it's so Yipeng is the festival. It's celebrated on the full moon um, of the 12th month, 12th lunar month of the year, um, is essentially 
what that is and it's you can you light lights off and the cultural significance is that um, so you let go essentially like life is wrong and you will symbolize letting go of all the ills in your life and of your family for the next year so you paying is through lighting lanterns off into the sky and so you're supposed to make a wish and write a prayer on the lantern and then if you do good during the year it will come true and the same goes for like Krathong. So like Krathong is where you let the, um, you make a bamboo boat um, and then you put a flag in the middle and you write your family's surname on like the three corners of the flag and then you let it off into the water with light. Um, and then the same kind of manner of letting go um, of all the ills from the last year and helping that all bad things and negative forces stay away from yourself and your family. Do you feel like, I know you talked a little bit about how you're a very cultural traveler. You like to learn about the culture mm -hmm. and kind of what's going on in the area. Do you think a lot of people there like understood that or was it more just like, oh, here's some pretty lights and let's take a few pictures? I think, uh, I don't know, it's really hard. I think people understood the very, I mean, I kind of gave a very, you know, basic overview and I think a lot of people understood the like the basis of oh they light the lanterns off as a you know as a traditional festival as for like what how much people actually know about the significance of it um, if they visited any of the watts in the city a couple of the watts would describe the festival and what was going on and so I'd like to think in that way some people were aware you know a little bit more aware of what was going on um, but like I said, with so many tourists there, it was a lot more driven towards, oh, here, let me light a lantern so I can take a picture and set it off. Um, and it was, it was actually, I mean, really dangerous because people don't know how to light off lanterns. Um, and so, you know, they would light and then you have to hold it down for the heat to fill the lantern before you release it. Otherwise, it won't float. And, you know, so you have all these tourists that are standing there on the bridge and not holding the lanterns down for long enough so when they let go they just fly horizontal into other people's heads <laughs> and telephone poles and trees <laughs> oh and gosh. I feel like everything everything was on fire um, I mean I, that's bound to happen when you have hundreds of thousands of lanterns but it just it's like I almost feel that if there are going to be a lot of tourists there they need to have like how-to lanterns for tourists <laughs> Uh, I mean, there was a there was a local parade that went on. So the festival is over, uh, basically three days, uh, mostly just like the Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday isn't too much. But uh, there was a local parade on Saturday night, um, and I think that that was that was really really interesting to see with a lot of the um, traditional dancing and outfits. Um, and talking, and they were announcing in Thai and English, so that was nice. Of kind of what was going on. Okay. Uh, quick question: Is you said it happens in the twelfth lunar month every year? Is that always November, or does that change? Yeah. No, so that's always November. It's you. It it changes when in November it is. I think usually it's later in November, um, like the eighteenth, nineteenth, twentieth. This year it was really early in November. It was uh, the first weekend in November. Okay. So, how do you, being like a cultural traveler and liking to learn about that stuff, obviously in museums or something like that, it's easy to learn because it's written out in front of you, but when you're in these villages or towns that aren't as um, just like in your face with information, how do you go about trying to learn about the culture and the significance of the place? I think the biggest way to do that, um, you know, devoid of any language barriers, um, is to just ask people. And I think really just going up to people and asking, you know, you know, what is this? What are you doing? You know, I want to know. I want to learn. Which is a difficult sometimes in when you do have a very large language barrier um, and you don't speak the same language. But the thing is, realistically, in today's world, a lot of people no matter where you go in the world, sometimes speak like very minimal English. Um, and so you can kind of get a gist. And so, I mean, what I usually do is then go back and look stuff up online, you know, with the use of the internet, uh, when there's not 
things readily accessible, I'll, I'll write down, you know, things that I want to look up later to learn about. Um, and then I also like to usually read about places before I go to them. So, you know, before going to um, Myanmar, reading a book, looking at maps, seeing, okay, what are the different states? What are the different cultures? You know, I don't need to read a nonfiction history book necessarily, but just something to give an idea of, you know, kind of what the country's like, what the history's like. Um, and what you're, you know, what you're walking into in the current political state and everything else. But I think that's that's mostly how I do it. it. I mean, it's really difficult. I've experienced it more here in Myanmar. It's with the language barriers. It's really difficult because there's a lot of really cool stuff, um, and it's hard to ask sometimes the people themselves because they just don't understand. But there are other people around that, you know, speak English. It was. So I'm here in Myanmar right now, and there's the Shan New Year a couple of days ago. And I was at a big festival in the city celebrating the New Year, watching the traditional dances. And everyone's so nice, you know, they say hi. And I ended up talking to this guy who leads tracks and speaks some English. And I just kept asking him questions about what was going on on stage and who the different dancers were. And it was really nice because then I, I was able to learn, oh, not all the dancers are from the Shan tribe people, dancers from different tribes perform in honor of the Shan New Year. You know, this is kind of what they're doing. This is how old the dance is. Okay. But I think talking to people is the biggest thing and like really just putting yourself out there and if people don't understand or don't get it, they don't, you know, they don't get it. Um, but you can try. Yeah, worth a shot at least. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um... Before, I, I want to ask a little bit more about your trip as a whole and kind of why you're doing it and stuff like that. But before we do that, I have a few just like random stock-like questions that I want to throw in there. Um, okay. So, are there any apps, websites, or other resources that you use while traveling or planning out traveling that you think are an absolute must-have? <laughs> Well, that's a great question. Um, I am a person that is not blessed with a lot of storage space on my phone. So um, before I started, I tried to clear most of my stuff on the phone and keep only the necessities. Um, I, it's, it's changed from before I left and then you know kind of to what I have now. So before I left, um, you know I always I do have like a kayak app like Skyscanner, some of the like two of the big airline ones um, just so that when I do have Wi-Fi if I need to look for flights it's a lot easier to search through the apps and keep things saved than it is to go onto a website on my phone. Um, I do have Facebook on my phone um, and Facebook messaging uh, for talking to people back at home uh, as long as well as WhatsApp um, which those three apps come in really handy um, if you get a SIM card in a country, some people use Viber instead of WhatsApp, um, so you can call. But you can, if you get a SIM card in a country, um, usually you can just change your number, and then that's the best way to keep in contact both with people that you meet in the country um, that are also traveling and people back at home. Uh, in terms of like strict travel, I still have Google Maps on my phone. Um, there's an application called Maps Me. I don't use I don't use it because I just don't have space uh, to download it on my phone right now. But you can download offline versions of Maps and then use them as you go around. Um, and you can search on there once you have it downloaded. So if you don't know where your hostel is, you can search that on there. And that's the one application I wish I had on my phone that I don't have. Um, let's see. What else do I have? I really don't have that much on my phone. 
just a lot of pictures and stuff that take up all the yeah, storage. Oh yeah. So, so, yeah, so, so the pictures is the other thing. So I, I do have Google Photos on my phone. And so I'm because I don't have a lot of storage on my phone, when my pictures take up my space, as long as I have Wi-Fi, my photos will upload to Google Photos. And then I can clear my phone of pictures and don't have to worry about it. So I'd say for me, that's probably been the biggest application that I use is Google Photos. Um, some people use, you know, just like the iCloud photos. I find for me that Google Photos is very nice because it's easier to share um, trips. Like if you take pictures of someone else, you know, or someone has pictures of you or you travel with someone for a while, you can share albums a little bit easier across interfaces if you have a, say, a, you know, iPhone and they have an Android. Um, but... You know, I like taking pictures. I don't really have a camera, so my phone, since my phone is my biggest mode of taking pictures, uh, for me, that app is necessary. Okay. It's hard. It's hard because I think there are a couple of general ones that everyone uses. I would say for communication, WhatsApp or Viber, Facebook messaging, for Maps, uh, both Google Maps and then Maps Me. Uh, Maps Me is, is really, really handy. I, I usually use peoples that I'm with. Um, and if I can free up enough space on my phone, I will download it. And if the Wi-Fi is ever good enough, I will download it. <laughs> is there any set website that you like to use for finding information? Uh, for information for travel, uh, I think for places in a country, I usually go to the Lonely Planet for like a broad overview of what to do in the country. Um, you know, they have the guidebooks themselves, but a lot of people don't want to carry a guidebook with them. And so having access to the online website is a great way to look and say, you know, I would like to go to this country, here are some big cities, and then you can kind of go in from there. Um, but actually, I've found that since I've been in a lot of the countries, a lot of hostels in different places have do have guidebooks that people have left. A lot of people travel to a country with a guidebook and then they leave it. Uh, and so there are a lot of guidebooks lying around, um, which are nice to look at when you get to a place. Okay. How do you maintain your well-being while on the road, especially for multiple months? That's a really great question. Um, I think... When you travel, a lot of your well-being, you know, people's idea of their own well-being, a lot of it is based off of where they were before they started traveling. So if you didn't have a good work-life balance before you started traveling um, and then you start traveling, I think sometimes it can be a little bit harder um, to fall into a routine because there is not necessarily a routine while traveling. And so for very routine-driven people, um, it can kind of be stressful uh, to be in a backpacker-type environment. Um, I feel like I had a pretty good sense of, you know, what it takes for my well-being before I left. So coming traveling, um, I think the biggest things for me are recognizing, you know, when my body is tired and that it is okay to take an extra day, sleep in, um, you know, just maybe walk around a little bit, um, you know, get lunch, but just take the day and sit and read and relax um, and let your body recover. Um, because if you're going all day, every day for four months, I mean, you're just, you're going to hit a wall. Um, it's just not possible. And I think, you know, for me, I'm not a huge um, person that, you know, goes out and parties a lot while I'm traveling. Um, so I think that that also helps me maintain my well-being a lot more. Uh, I feel, I usually feel really great in the mornings. Um, you know, I'm not spending a lot of extra money and I'm able to do all of the things that I want to do and not feel like there's, you know, a bad hangover hindering me <laughs> from doing um, everything that I want. Uh, the biggest thing, though, I think for me is, like, I'm very, very physically active at home and when you're traveling it sometimes it's hard culturally or just with moving you might be walking but you're not you know biking or running or doing different things and so I think finding opportunities um, to do 
things for your, you know, physical well-being while you're traveling is really important as well. So, like, you know, I got up early this morning, and I, you know, I did go on a run this morning, and it felt really great um, to finally run. I haven't ran in probably three weeks, um, you know, and I'm taking a night bus tonight and going trucking for the next three days, um, not necessarily because it's like the coolest thing to do in the country but because you know I, I really want to do something active and for me that's something that I think is very important and then you get to see the countryside and everything around it um, oh that's awesome are, did yeah. you hire a guide for that or are you just going alone um, there are a couple of it's I mean right now it's about 13 hours north of where I am in a bus and there are a couple of places that uh, like small local places that kind of do like you can hire a guide and so I actually met a couple of people at my hostel here who um, the four of us are paying a guide to go trekking for we're going on like three days two nights um, up in the mountains up north awesome so. so you I'm assuming that you will have no Wi-Fi or connection during this trip <laughs> no, probably not. I did, so I do have a SIM card right now. Actually, I'm not really sure how it works. Um, the only thing I can do with it is pretty much use Facebook Messenger. <laughs> um, but it was given to me by someone that was leaving the country. They didn't need it, so they said, here, do you want it? So um, it's nice in case I like, absolutely need to talk to someone or something. But... I, I'm assuming service will probably still be up there for that, uh, but I think in general, no, pretty much off, off the grid for the most part. Did you ever do your technology detox? I know that you were <laughs> kind of planning on doing something s similar, at least kind of go off the grid for a, a few days, if not a week or more. Yeah, so it's funny that you mentioned that um, I was just talking about that with someone last night so I, I did try it so I when I was in Yangon I went off the grid and you know just went by asking people at the hotel or different you know different hostel or different people um, and then catching buses and I found that it's really 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 hard um, not in the sense of like being detached from your phone um, for like communication to the outside world but in the sense of logistics in today's world to be off the grid completely you know there are some people that boast you know oh I did you know this country you know for a month completely off the grid um, but the thing is like realistically when I'm looking at a map of the country of Myanmar or like a map at the city like you can't even buy maps in a lot of places so you don't have any sort of map and so you don't really know where anything is so being off the off the grid in terms of like not having access to like you know or not looking at a map of in your phone or not looking at um, anything else and not booking stuff in advance a it's a lot more expensive B it takes a lot more time doing just pointless things um, like trying to figure something out that if you did have a map or you did have access on your phone, it would take about two minutes. Um, and I think that's kind of the point of going off the grid is that, you know, you want to experience that, how much, you know, time and effort it takes um, and, you know, the work you have to put into it. But at the same time, we're never, as a society, going to regress back to that point. Like, we're never going to go back to a point without technology at this point. So I think, like, I mean, I only made it, I think, like, four days. And, I mean, it was really hard. I ended up spending more money, and I ended up not, you know, thankfully I met people and, like, was able to see some of this, like, some things. But, like, I still missed some things that I would have liked to see uh, just because I, I didn't I didn't know. Um and so it, it's kind of hard to explain, but it, I think for me in traveling, I've realized that, you know, I don't need to be by my phone to talk to people or be by my phone to be on the Internet. But technology in the sense of, like, logistical or even having a SIM card is so convenient because you can use your phone when you want to to, like, book something or do something, and it takes 
not very much time you can do it and be done and you know go on with your day and put your phone away um, but if you don't have that the Wi-Fi is so terrible that you spend 15 minutes trying to load the page and then it might or might not load and you might or might not be able to book it and if you don't have any Wi-Fi well then the place is sold out where you're trying to go when you get there <laughs> and you have to like sleep in a bus station oh so gosh. It's it's uh it's a really fine line, um, but I think a lot of travelers are really good with their phones, um, in the sense that you know you, even if you have a SIM and you have connection, you you use it for the purpose of travel and for coordination and logistics. But it's not the same, I don't think, as like in the U.S. or other parts of the world when you when you're there and it's everyone's sitting in a group at a table, but everyone's on their phones. Okay. Yeah. How. How did the generations before us do this with me? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Major I don't, props. <laughs> I don't know because it's hard. I mean, it's, and it's not like, I, you know, I can't read a map. It's just that it makes it so... If, if you're on a time limit or, you know, you don't want to spend excessive amounts of days doing unnecessary travel, it's really... <laughs> It's really hard, uh, you know, to not have access to that, you know, those online maps and that online technology. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's, I've, I've been thinking about doing something similar, or like a little bit of a detox, at least from like phone and laptop, because I, I do spend a lot of time just on it, especially for like the podcast or the blog, which is necessary, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes it keeps me indoors which isn't always good so I'm kind of considering doing it but I definitely want to find an area where I can like make home base for that week so because yeah, like you said logistically it's going to be it's very difficult to not be able to use your phone for bookings or for directions and things like that yeah, and I mean, I think it's definitely a good thing to try to do, uh, you know, just to know that you can do it, but it, I think, yeah, for me, I definitely found that it's, you know, you could have your phone and have it in the offline mode if you wanted to detox that way and, like, you know, not have any access to, you know, people online or that, you know, the concept is you still have your phone, and it's like, oh, could you just get rid of that? <laughs> Yeah, just the actual physical phone. Just even yeah. when it's in your pocket and like without Wi Fi. Right. You still like catch it's yourself. It's the concept of it. Yeah. 